0: Three. We're going to be uh, closing out this chapter, at least. We're going to be going from verses 20 through 35, and uh, there's a lot of good stuff that we that we see happening in here. So let me read the passage, and then we will uh, we'll pray and we'll see what God has to say to us today. So here are the words of our God in Mark chapter three, starting in verse 20. Jesus entered a house. And the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the rulers of the demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself... That house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he, he can't stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he, is, he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit his mother and his brothers came standing outside and they sent word to him and called him a crowd was sitting around him and told him look your mother your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you he replied to them who are my mother and my brothers And looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my brothers, my my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Lord, uh, difficult words, um, not only in, in interpretation, but also in our practice. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us grace to follow You regardless of the cost, that You would be the desire of our heart, and that we would be willing to give up anything on this earth to be with You. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Oh Well, how many of you would say that you are a fan of something, a television show, a, a book, maybe a sports team, uh, a musical group, or singer. A show of hands, is anybody a fan of something? Okay, yeah, I think we all are. Uh, maybe the sports team, maybe the, maybe the Twins. Maybe if the Twins were doing a little bit better this year. Um, maybe the Wild, maybe the Lynx. Of course, everybody wants to be a Lynx fan now, right? They keep winning all the time. What about the Vikings? Do we have any Vikings fans? Yes, I knew I would see Kitty's hand up right away. Anybody Packers fans? Y'all need to repent, Just kidding. You know we're all fans of something. You know some of us are like super fans. We're like totally into uh, into these. I've met guys that uh, can just list out stats of sport teams uh, from years and years past. You know you see uh, people on the television sometimes that uh, they go to these games and. Man, they're like, they're out there without their shirts on, but their shirts are paint. And, you know, they're just, they're fans. They're just totally all in. Tailgating, doing all that kind of stuff. You know, I, I really like the show Pawn Stars. And if you've ever seen that show, it's a show about a, a, a pawn shop in, in Las Vegas. And they get these cool, interesting things in all the time. And oftentimes they get these items in that the workers there don't know exactly. You know, either what it is or how much it's worth, and so what do they do? They call in an expert, right? And it's cool when they call in these experts because they walk in and their eyes get all big. They're so like enamored by this object, and they're just they love it so much that their enthusiasm sort of uh, sort of rubs off on you. So, what do you call someone that is like a super fan, a fanatic, right? You call these people an absolute fanatic of these sorts of things. You know, the, uh, the American College Dictionary uh, has a different definition for a fan and a fanatic. A fan is an ardent devotee, an enthusiast. A fanatic is a person marked by extreme, unreasoning enthusiasm as for a cause. So the distinction, apparently, between a fan and a fanatic is whether the enthusiasm is ardent or unreasoning. But, um, you know, not many of us would fault someone for being a fan of a lot of things. When I was in college, I was a fanatic of the Dave Matthews Band. If you would have gone into my dorm, I had these huge posters of Dave. They're like oversized posters. I couldn't even get my hands wide enough for I had bootlegs. I had every single CD they had ever made, and I was just all in. I would go to a concert in Chicago, just loved them. I also was a fanatic of choral music. Boy, there's two different contrast there, right? I mean, I was known in the choir department as the human choral library because there wasn't that many pieces that I didn't know. I was all in. You talked to Dave Everson here for just a few minutes and put you on the spotlight. Now, he loves languages, and it's just really cool to listen to him talk about origins of language and all that kind of stuff that is really cool, and he gets, and we just shake our heads and say, "Uh uh-huh. It's just really cool to see how he is into that. When I was an RA, there was this guy on my floor that was super into fish and he had like five fish tanks in his dorm. Some were salt water and some were fresh water. He had like this 100-gallon tank underneath the the loft of his bed that had these really cool fish. And some of our floor activities were to go into Rob's room and watch the fish eat because it was really cool, especially the eel because if you could put the eel high enough on the the tank, he might actually jump out, which was kind of a treat if the eel jumped out of the thing. But Rob didn't mind all this because he was so into fish. He was a fanatic. And we hear stories about these kind of people and we're like, wow, that's really cool. They're really into that thing. I wish I was into something as much as, as they were into that. But what if I told you that someone was a religious fanatic. Would that change the definition in your mind? What comes to your mind when I say those words together? A religious fanatic. Maybe some of you think about terrorists that are blowing people up in the name of Allah. Maybe you're, you're, you're thinking of, of people who are involved in a cult. Maybe, maybe you're thinking of fundamentalist Christians. When you hear that word, religious fanatic, it often turns us away. In our passage today, we meet and encounter someone who is accused of being a religious fanatic, and he was given this title not by outsiders, but he was given this title by the very people that he should have been closest with. He was given the title and accused of being insane by his own family. He was looked at as being demon-possessed by the religious leaders of his day. This man, Jesus, is so unique that we are forced to take these claims of what they say and what Jesus says about himself, and we are forced to make a decision about who this Jesus truly was, we cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus. We have to either see Him as crazy, we either have to see Him as satanic, or we have to receive Him as Lord. And so if we reject Him, we risk the possibility that He was just who He claimed to be. And we're risking an eternity apart from anything that is good. But if we receive Him as Lord and Savior, we also risk being considered religious fanatics in this life. There's risk on either side, but either way, we must come to a conclusion, and we can do that in three ways. The first is is that we have to see the source of Jesus' authority. We have to see the source. Of Jesus's authority. you know for the past couple of years our, our family has spent time up in, in the Park Rapids area and one of our favorite things to do is to take the 16 mile bike ride around Lake Itasca. It's just absolutely beautiful. You get, uh, you get to see some incredible sights and it's just it's just gorgeous. however, one of the highlights for us happens uh, really within a mile or two after you get started and from where the where the bike rental shop is, uh, to uh, the next place. It's very short, but it's called the Headwaters of the Mississippi. It is where the Mississippi River starts. The Mississippi River, which flows 2,300 miles and dumps out in the Gulf of Mexico, finds its source in this beautiful lake in Minnesota, completely untouched by resorts and all that recreation that you would see on most. Minnesota lakes. And if you've been there, it, it's really cool because it starts out very, very thin. In fact, it's the, it's the, the thinnest point that the Mississippi River has in its 2,300-mile journey. It's only about 20 or 30 feet, and you can actually walk across it on the rocks. It's really cool that you can say, I just walked across the Mississippi River. You can't do that in Minneapolis. It's widest is in Bina, uh, at Lake Winnebagosh, which is 11 miles wide. It's this huge lake. And even though many other lakes and rivers feed into it, it's just amazing that one of the biggest rivers in the world starts just a few hours away from us. And it would make sense that such a long, important, beautiful river would find its source in something that's so just amazing to, to see. You wouldn't imagine, in fact, it would be unfathomable for you to think that the Mississippi River would start in a dirty, stinky swamp. No one would think that. You know, up to our passage, the people in Israel had seen Jesus doing some amazing things. He was preaching authoritatively like they've never heard anyone preach before. He was healing people left and right, and he was casting out all these demons. These are really good things that are meant to point to his glory, and point people to his saving power. If he can heal people of their diseases, he can surely save us from our sins. In John chapter 4, Jesus presents himself as a spring of living water, of spiritual water by which all who come to him are completely satisfied in life, here, and in eternity. He tells the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he says, whoever drinks from the water that I will give him Will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. So it's the picture that in Jesus, he provides everything that we need for life, for godliness, for joy, for peace, for contentment, for purpose. But it's precisely for doing these great things that Jesus gets himself in trouble. Look with me in verse 22. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Now, the the scribes here are the religious teachers of the day. They're the scholars. They're the ones that would be the seminary professors and the preachers. And these scribes, these leaders, they... They see Jesus doing all these things, and because Jesus doesn't really fit into their paradigm, because he doesn't fit into the box that they see religious leaders should have, and because they can't deny everything that they've seen, they need to come up with their own conclusions. And the most logical explanation that they can come up with is that Jesus… His authority to heal and to forgive and to cast out demons and to do all these things is because his source of power comes from Satan. And just as it would be be ridiculous to think that the source of the Mississippi River would come from a, a filthy swamp, The scribes here are saying that the streams of living water that are pouring out from Jesus don't just come from a spiritual swamp, but a spiritual tar pit. The depth of their insinuation is often lost on our ears. There's a lot of debate concerning what this Beelzebul actually means and, and where it's originated. Uh, we're not 100% certain, but it certainly was a deep insult that they were giving Jesus. It's one thing to say that someone may be possessed by Satan or a demon. It is even deeper thing to say that he is possessed by Beelzebub. Beelzebul was originally attributed to the Syrian god of Ekron, which literally meant lord of the dwelling. But over the generations, the the Hebrews had had sort of changed the meaning uh, by which they thought of it, and they used it as a term to refer to something that was repulsive or, or a rotten origin. This Beelzebul to the Hebrews was this sort of demon god that ruled over filth, that ruled over dead corpses and flies. In fact, the novel Lord of the Flies is actually a play on the word Beelzebul because the name ended up meaning for the Hebrews the Lord of the Dunghill. So not only are they saying that he is being in service to the ruler of demons, But they are essentially also insinuating that because he is a servant, that he is lower than the one who rules over a fecal hill. But Jesus obviously picks up on the fallacy of their argument here. And he challenges them on it. Look with me in verses 23 through 27. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? Satan. If the kingdom is divided against itself; that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house it can't stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he can't stand, but's finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. So Jesus is really showing the brilliance of his wisdom here, in in basically. Uh, by teaching two really important things, the first is is that he is providing the reasoning by which Satan could never fight against himself, and secondly, he is identifying himself as the only one who is strong enough to defeat Satan and let Satan's captives go free. Let's break those two up here for just a moment. You know, I'm currently reading uh, Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, to my oldest two children. And there's this great scene in which Bilbo Baggins... And his dwarf companions, they, they stumble upon this uh, this group of trolls that are sitting around a, a fire. And Bilbo is sort of the uh, appointed uh, robber. He's the appointed thief. And so they send Bilbo to go and steal from these trolls and then come back to them and see what happens. And, and Bilbo ends up getting caught and the dwarves start well, well, where is, where is Bilbo? And so they go and try to find him and rescue him. And all the dwarves, they start getting caught too. And so these dwarves start talking about How are we going to cook these dwarves and whatever this other creature is? How are we going to cook them? How are we going to eat them? Well, then another member of their party hides in the wood, Gandalf, and he starts speaking like one of these trolls and gets them to argue against each other. Sooner or later, they start bickering at each other so much that they forget about the fact that if they see the sun, they're going to die. So they keep arguing and they keep chattering amongst themselves, fighting amongst themselves. Sun pops up, they turn to stone, and they're just done. It's a silly point, but it is making the point that Jesus is saying here. It's not possible for an organization or a group to survive if there's infighting. It's true for a company. It's true for a family. Folks, it's true for a church. And it's true for Satan. So if the scribes want to hold this view that Jesus is possessed by this Beelzebul then they have to admit that Satan's reign is already crumbling. So Jesus then offers an alternative view, a truthful view about the source of his authority. Look again in verse 27. But if one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions, uh, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. So Jesus gives him this parable about a man breaking into someone's house, and he basically says, look, if someone breaks into someone else's ha- uh, the house, they don't have a chance if that person that lives there is stronger than them. Maybe they're armed with a gun. Maybe they have some really sweet ninja skills. Maybe they uh, have a threatening demeanor. Maybe they, they can they can fight and overpower the person that is, that is coming in. And if they are more powerful, good luck to that person that's breaking in. But if someone comes in who is stronger, who is better armed, more prepared, they can either tie up or hurt the owner to the point where they're incapacitated and the, and the person breaking in has free reign of that person's house. And Jesus is likening himself here to the very strong, well-armed man that's breaking into this house. In this case, he's talking about Satan's house. Now, we have to remember that, uh, that uh, throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks about Satan being the prince, of, the prince of this world. In fact, Paul even says that as well, that this is uh, Satan's dominion. And so Jesus now has come, uh, God incarnate as a person, to invade Satan's house, to bind him, reduce his power. And he did that in his perfect life. He did that on his death on the cross. And he did that in his resurrection from the dead, thus eliminating any power that Satan has over God's people. So what is Jesus then saying to us? His power, his authority come from a source much higher, much more powerful, much more glorious, much more good than Beelzebul. His power and authority come from God. He is powerful enough and authoritative enough to defeat Satan. And if he can do that, then surely he is trustworthy enough to give our lives too to give everything that we are to. Because Jesus' authority and power are divine, you can give him your sin. You can give him your shame. You can give him your guilt. You can give him your fear. You can give him your future. You can give him your family. You can give him your problems. You can give him your depression. You can give him your sorrows. You can give him your joys and trust him with those things. All power and authority have been given to him. So recognize his source and give up what you are holding on to and follow him in faith. And secondly, we need to also see the source of Jesus' forgiveness. The source of Jesus' forgiveness. You know, a number of years ago, you, some YouTube videos made news headlines because there was this group called the Rational Response Squad. And their mission was to attack and discredit anything that they saw as uh, theological or Christian in any way. They did not want anything to do with spirituality, and they were going to do what they could to take Jesus out. And so a few years ago, they issued a challenge to their followers called the Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit Challenge. And this challenge was for people, particularly teens, that would make a video, sort of tell their experience about church and about faith and their thoughts about God, and then in the very end, uh, they would say, and uh, without further ado, I'm here to declare that I deny the Holy Spirit. And it it was pretty sad to watch because these are people that had grown up in the church. People that knew God, they were experienced with with God. I mean, they didn't know Him personally, but they've been exposed to all these different viewpoints, all these different ideas, and they don't believe anymore that there is sufficient evidence to believe that God exists. And they end up saying that they deny the Holy Spirit. And and, uh, as sad as those videos are, I think they're making a mistake. Not simply because of of choosing to be atheists. I think that is a mistake as well. And and it's not simply because they're consciously choosing to not be forgiven for their sin, but I also think that they're making a mistake because they've totally misunderstood what Jesus is saying here in this passage. And it's quite easy to do that, to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. There are, there are people all the time that come to pastors and clergy and theologians that are wanting to know, have I committed the unforgivable sin? It's caused a lot of stress and anxiety in the hearts of Christians. And I think that we can get to the bottom of what Jesus is saying here. If we look at the… Uh, and be radically freed to be fanatics for Jesus, if we see his uh, context and what he means. Let's look in verses 28 through 30 again. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Okay, so it might be helpful to to backtrack a bit and remember what uh, became of Jesus and His work. Jesus would become our substitute in many ways. When you think of a substitute, you think of someone that is standing in the place of someone else. Uh, you know, for those… That, well, we've all been through school, and you've all had substitute teachers, right? That substitute teacher is coming in in the place of your regular teacher to be the teacher at that appointed time. The Bible tells us that Jesus lived an absolutely perfect life. He was tempted just like you and I are, yet he never succumbed to any of those temptations. He did this not as an example to emulate saying, hey, I can do it, so now you need to do it, but rather as fully God and as fully man. He was able to do for us what we were not able to do for ourselves. He was perfect in order to be our substitute. He was perfect in our place, in our stead. The Bible tells us that Jesus also died on a cross. He was executed by the Roman government. However, Scripture tells us that He was placed on this cross, that He suffered and died to absorb the wrath of God for our sin. He was being our substitute in our punishment. Every word, thought, and deed that we have ever committed was placed on Him as our substitute. The Bible further tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead to show His victory over sin and over death, to be our forerunner in resurrection and one day what we will find in ourselves. And the way that we obtain all of this is by trusting in Him and His work. That what He did was completely sufficient for everything that we have thought, said, and done. He was the perfect substitute for our deficiencies. Now, notice the scope of his work as our substitute. Notice what he says here. He says, All sins will be forgiven. There isn't, <laughs> there isn't one careless word or thought that Jesus hasn't taken on your behalf. Whatever blasphemies that could be uh, against God or it could be against how you've uh, taken someone else's name and thrown it into the mud. These blasphemies, it's all paid for. And yet, there are some in the faith that look at these verses and they question whether they've committed the unforgivable sin. They've done something maybe taboo. They struggle with shame and they they struggle with with guilt and fear and maybe they're insecure in their doubts. And those who are suffering in this way must look no further than the cross. Look in verse 26. People will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. So, the unforgivable sin, we have to see firstly, is not about what you do, it's about what you believe. It's about what you believe. And Mark helpfully points uh, and provides some commentary on what that means. Look in verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin, verse 30, this is commentary, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So what in Mark's view then is the unforgivable sin? It was the fact that the scribes were saying that Jesus is possessed by the devil. They were attributing his powerful, his good, his beautiful works to something demonic. So the unforgivable sin, simply put, is unbelief. It is not believing in what Jesus has come to do on our behalf. But we have to look at this on a continuum. We're all on this journey of life. We're all at different points. And and the Bible tells us that God is not only gracious and merciful, but get this. It says that God is incredibly patient, that He is patient with us. You may know someone or you may be someone that today chooses to reject this concept as G, uh, of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Take heart in knowing that the final chapter hasn't been written yet. Your story is still be written, being written. There is still time. There is still time to love these people. There is still time to pray for them. There is still time to show them Christ. There is still time to tell them about Christ. If this is the disposition that you are living in now, there is time to repent but it's not as if this time is endless. We all need to come to a conclusion regarding Jesus. You can't stay neutral. And let's be honest for a minute. You don't know. You can have a pretty good idea, but you don't know if you're even going to make it through this day. It is possible that the Lord may end your life today. Unbelief offers you perhaps a jolly good time here today, but in eternity, apart from anything that is good, anything that is lovely. And if you are stubborn in your unbelief, it is an awfully big risk for you to take. Jesus offers you hope. Jesus offers you peace. Jesus offers you forgiveness and eternal joy if you trust Him and see the source of His forgiveness. God's abounding mercy and grace for everything we've said, thought, and done. So we also need to see the source of Jesus' forgiveness. But we also need to see, finally, the source of Jesus' true relationships. We need to see the source of Jesus' true relationships. You know, many of us may say that we don't care what other people think of us, but the truth is we care. We care what others think about us. The amount of of care that you have, obviously, depends on the proximity of the relationship. So if you were to go and take a trip to, say, California today and someone doesn't like you because your shoelaces aren't tied the way they like it or whatever it is, you can brush that off because you, you, you don't know that person. You might think about it for a few minutes, but whatever, you don't know him. But you are going to care very much what someone that you work with what they think of you. It's why we care about what we say. It's why we care about what we do. (laughs) It's why we even care about what we wear. Because we have that idea. But if someone, what if someone from your very own family said and meant that they thought that you were crazy? Some of you have had an experience like this. you become a Christian. You're not the person that you used to be. And when you speak with your family about it, they're, they're put off by it. And they think that maybe you've started to lose it. Let's take it a little further. What if your family invited you over to what you thought was dinner? and you go over to their house there's no food prepared but all of your family are sitting in a circle in the living room and they ask you to sit down in the middle of the circle and they ask, and and they say to you that we're here today because we are concerned for your mental health we are concerned that this Jesus and this church thing is not healthy And we want you to enter into therapy. And your family isn't joking. They literally think that you are going crazy. That would be a deep blow. Mark points out in our text that Jesus' family thought he was losing his mind. First, look in verses 20 and 21. Jesus entered a house, it was probably Peter's house, more than likely, in Capernaum, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. Verse 21, when his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. Now, jump down to verse 31. His mother and his brothers came standing outside, and they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, look, your mother, your brother's And your sisters, the whole family, Joseph is probably dead at this point, are outside asking for you. So his family eventually, essentially shows up. And they've staged an intervention for Jesus. They've grown up with him. They know him. And here he is attracting a crowd. And it's simply not healthy. In fact, it's getting worse, and they need to take him away for his own good. But it is this accusation that triggers Jesus to redefine true relationships with him. Look in verses 33 through 35. He replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and and mother, You know, as Christians, we rightly emphasize the importance of the family unit. We believe that the family is the foundation of society. That when the family breaks down, society inevitably goes with it. I honestly believe that the biggest problem in our culture... It's not guns. It's not universal health care. It's not uh, degrading public schools. It's none of these hot-button issues. The biggest problem in our society is the breakdown of the family unit. Children are growing up in the most confused, backward understanding of family, marriage, and, and gender and sexuality, and it has wreaked havoc in our society. So, as Christians, we rightly prize what God has established as family and, and right thinking the way it is designed to be. But in Jesus' mind, there is something that is even um, higher than the family unit, as crucially important as that is, and that is allegiance to Jesus and those who are grafted into his family by faith. Jesus is looking at the situation, and on the one hand, he says, I've got this family whom I love, whom I care for, um, who, but who don't see me as God has called me, who is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who came to seek and to save the, the lost. And on the other hand, he's got these other people who were, who were lost, and they have been found by him and they have clung to him. And Jesus says, I'm going with them. That is who my allegiance is. Now realize here that Jesus is not telling us to reject our families, but he is telling us that if push comes to shove, our allegiance is to God and his people. Friends, those of us who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are of closer kins, uh, closer kin's people to people that are suffering on behalf of the Lord Jesus in China than we are to our flesh and blood who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at some of the radical things that Jesus said about this. In Luke 9, verses 57 and 60, he said, uh, As they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, "Foxes have dens and birds have the sky. Uh, birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head." Then he said to another, "Follow Me, Lord." He said, "Let me first go and bury my father." But he told him, "Let the dead go bury their own dead. But you go on and spread the good news in the kingdom of Christ." Folks, who talks like this? Look now in in Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Friends, he's not not saying here that we literally need to hate our family. He is using a hyperbole, which is a, a gross exaggeration, to prove a point. That compared to our love for Jesus... Our love for our family ought to pale in comparison. Now, contrast that to those he mentions in verses 33 and 35. I'm going to read it again. He replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister mother. So, so, what does he mean in verse 35 when he says, whoever does the will of God? Is he saying that you have to do something? Is there some sort of act? Is it being a good person? Is it uh, going to church? Is it donating money to some charity? I think that John six twenty-nine is very helpful in shedding light on this. Well, let's back up to verse 28 in John 6. Uh, what so? What can we do to perform the works of God? They asked him. Jesus replied, "This is the work of God, that you believe in the one He has sent. So who are Jesus's brothers and sisters and mothers, and we can put fathers in there? Those who believe in Him." those who avoid the unpardonable sin, those who choose to follow him in faith. So then, what are we to take from this? How then must we live? As much as we love our families and as joyous and as beautiful as our families are, the question is, is does Jesus take priority for you? Does Jesus take priority over your children's sports? Does Jesus take priority over your marriage? Does he take priority in how you go about life? And the next question is, are you willing to make the necessary changes in your life and in your family to follow Jesus more fully. Perhaps that means scaling back your spending. Perhaps that means beginning family devotions together. Perhaps that means starting or keeping a prayer life for your family. Perhaps that means getting involved in the church as a family, making the church a priority, attending Sunday school, coming to church more regularly with consistency and i think the hardest question of all that jesus is asking us this morning is are you willing to lose everything that is dear to you for the sake of christ that the people that are closest to you knew your devotion your passion through jesus and they wrote you out of your life because of your love for jesus are you willing for that Are you willing to be called crazy by those whom you love? Some of you have already had to go through that. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth the loss. He is worth the pain. Because what you get in him is greater than anything You will be able to get and gain in this life. And because of that, you can confidently go all in with Jesus. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard or painful, but it does mean it's going to be worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. You know, we're all fans of many things. Some of us are fans or super fans and fanatics of things. Very low risk, fanatical things. Vikings, donuts, whatever it is. But perhaps one of the most fearful things we can possibly experience is being called a religious fanatic or Jesus freak. And maybe that's an abused term. But Jesus does call us to a radical faith and a radical trust in Him. But in that call, we need to remember that He is the source of everything that is good. He is the source of forgiveness, joy, peace, contentment, purpose, grace, mercy. Again, you can't be neutral. You need to make a choice. Reject Him or receive Him? Where are you going to land today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we don't like being rejected by friends and family. We certainly don't like being called a fanatic or a Jesus freak. but Lord, I pray that you would be creating in us a people who are completely sold out to you, a people that are willing to let go of those things that we hold dear, that if you were to take them away today, that we, knowing that we have you, then we have enough. Father, I pray for those this morning that may not have found you to be Exactly what you said you were, the Lord, the giver of life. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them, that they would see that there is indeed risk, but there's great reward in following you. Lord, for those here that may uh, be struggling in their faith, maybe they've walked away, maybe they're not living the way that they feel that they should, Lord, that you would give them the grace. be all in for Christ. They would unashamedly love Him, and that they would give their lives in service to Him. And it's in Jesus' matchless name that I ask this. Amen. Let's stand together as the worship team comes forward.